this week on Making Contact. August 29, 1970. 30,000 people, mostly Chicanos, peacefully demonstrated against the disproportionate number of Latinos dying on the front lines in Vietnam. Chicanos were calling for a moratorium on the war, but the three-mile march and rally to Laguna Park wasn't only about that. People came from as far as Texas, New Mexico, and New York to also protest substandard education, racism, police violence, and other issues negatively affecting Latinos. Tongva elder Gloria Arellanes is a former Brown Beret and one of the moratorium organizers. It was a beautiful day weather-wise. The crowds were amazing. Chicano moratorium organizer Rosalio Munoz. It was a wondrous event. It was like a moving fiesta down the main commercial center of uh, East Los Angeles. And there was something going on that made me go up on the stage. And all I could see at the back of the park was like a wave. People just coming in and then moving out and then coming back again. And then all hell broke loose. What started out as a peaceful demonstration of students and families ended with an attack on the crowd by riot-clad police, 400 arrests and the deaths of four people, one of whom was Los Angeles Times journalist Ruben Salazar. But the August 29th Chicano moratorium wasn't simply a march and rally that turned violent. It became a turning point in the Chicano civil rights movement and left a stain on Los Angeles that after half a century still hasn't gone away. This is Frontline East LA, the Chicano Moratorium, 50 years later, on Making Contact. I'm Monica Lopez. L.A. was a very different place in 1970. For one thing, Latinos, mostly Mexican-Americans, made up 13% of the city's population. Today it's about half. Few held political office. Instead, they wielded their power through their activism. In the summer of 1970, the Chicano civil rights movement had reached a high point, and Latinos were marching en masse for peace and social change. One of our slogans was, our war is here. Our front line is here, not in Vietnam. Our front line is in the struggle for social justice at home. Rosalio Munoz traveled to dozens of U.S. cities to speak about the importance of Chicanos creating a peace movement of their own. It was called Chicano Moratorium because uh, that fall of 1969, there were major demonstrations one that went going on all over the country in 50 to 100 cities, and a couple of million people or more demonstrated, including a lot of Chicanos. And yet Chicano activists knew the full picture about Latino casualties was not being reported. Nearly everyone I spoke to for this story used the term cannon fodder to describe the military's treatment of Chicano soldiers. Political scientist Dr. Ralph Guzman found that while Mexican-Americans made up only about 10% of the population in the Southwest, they were a staggering 19.4% of casualties in Vietnam. The farm workers were organizing farm workers, the uh, leaders of walkouts uh, for a higher, better education. They were fighting for better education. The ones fighting for against gerrymandering and to register voters, they were doing that. 
but we needed people that would focus on organizing against the war and nationally. The Brown Berets of East L.A. were instrumental in calling for a Chicano moratorium. Local and national media were on site to cover it. On August 29th, I was an associate producer at television station KCT in Los Angeles. Jesus Trevino and his sound recordist Henry Rangel wrapped up their coverage of the rally at Laguna Park and headed back to their car. It was near the entrance to the sheriff's substation. And we were unloading the equipment into my car when all of a sudden we heard this incredible wailing of sirens and these cars started emerging from the parking lot. There must have been, I think I counted something like 35 different cars that whizzed by. And they were going so fast that we had to flatten ourselves up against the, the cars or else we would be hit. And each in each of these sheriff's patrol cars, there were four or five or even six officers jammed in there with full riot gear. Trevino found out later that someone at a liquor store near the park had called the police to report a stolen six-pack of beer. 20 minutes earlier, and it had been a peaceful march, and I did the math. I said, well, how long does it take to get 35 cars full of sheriffs with their uniforms and everything else together and organize? And it, it was evident to me that they must have been waiting there for hours, perhaps. And I think when the call came in about the Green Mill liquor store, that was the pretext they were waiting for. UCLA history professor Juan Gomez Quinones wrote that 500 police officers and sheriff's deputies joined the melee that day. When it was all over, 400 people had been arrested and four were dead, including LA Times journalist and KMEX news director Ruben Salazar. Salazar was killed when LA County Sheriff's deputy Tom Wilson fired a projectile into the Silver Dollar Cafe. The canister struck the reporter in the head. Gloria Arellanes recalls that the deaths of Lynn Ward, Angel Gilbert Diaz, Gustav Montag, and Ruben Salazar overshadowed the issues behind the moratorium. Then, of course, the whole thing, what became the issue was the death of Ruben Salazar, you know, a news reporter, a well-liked man. He just went in there for beer. And how does somebody shoot through a curtain and get him? He's sitting at a bar. That means they didn't announce. They just shot that canister in there. Documentary filmmaker Jesus Trevino. Tempers were pretty high, and they were fearful that there was going to be another riot, that the community would explode again. And so the authorities all agreed that they should convene a blue-ribbon panel made up of community members. Members like clergy and community activists who could lend credibility to the coroner's inquest into Ruben Salazar's death. People like Irene Tovar, who currently sits on the city of L.A.'s Human Relations Commission. I guess to placate us, they created the inquest. And basically, it was most of us who had been the organizer. And our role was really nothing. We would go there every day. Uh, and then they would be interviewing the, the sheriffs and the LAPD. And our role was to sit there and observe. And as it turned out, many of these people wound up walking away from it because they felt they were being used. The following clip was taken from a 1970 documentary film about the moratorium, Requiem 29. In the film, hearing officer Norman Pitluck ask Raul Ruiz whether he saw people breaking police car windows. Ruiz was a staff photographer for the Chicano newspaper La Raza. 
Would you describe the individual you saw throwing the article uh, or articles at police car windows? Wow. If you know. No, that's, that's really impossible. All right. Do you have any photographs in your collection of individuals who did break uh, police car windows? No, I don't. Do you have any photographs in your collection of broken police windows, police car windows? I would imagine I do have. Do you have them with you? No, I don't. Uh, did you personally see any windows uh, broken, any stores or shops along Whittier Boulevard? I saw windows broken on Whittier Boulevard, not at the time that they were being broken. I observed that they were broken, uh, you know, as I passed through Whittier Boulevard. Do you know of what type of item was used to break the windows? If you know. No. Did you see any particular individuals uh, who were breaking windows? I, I think I answered that question already. Well, if the answer is no, I'd appreciate it. Well, I answered that question already. I told you already before that I... If well, that it, was in the connection windows, with police windows. This is in connection with store windows. Well, in connection with store windows, the previous question that you asked me, did I observe any individuals? And I had said no. I, I told you that right. I observed That's windows were already right. broken when I passed or saw them. All right. Do you have any pictures of any individuals? in that connection? Any pictures of uh, anyone breaking a window? Well, if we follow the logic of the questions that you're asking me. I told you that, I, that the, the, the windows that I did see were already broken. Of course, how would I be able to see the... All right. On August 29th, Salazar was seated with colleagues inside the Silver Dollar Bar and Cafe. They were further down Whittier Boulevard, about two miles away from the attack by police at the park. At the inquest, then L.A. County Deputy Sheriff Tom Wilson describes what he did at the entrance to the Silver Dollar Cafe. I made the decision to fire tear gas. When I approached the doorway, I knew I had a tear gas projectile and the weapon. I didn't know whether I had a long-range missile or whether I had a flight right. It really wouldn't make that much difference to me. The, uh, the reason for using a flight right or a tumbler would be to get inside the location but I, I wanted to get something inside, and I wanted to get it inside quick. Wilson shot a nine-and-a-half-inch long tear gas canister into the bar, which struck the journalist in the head and killed him. Filmmaker Jesus Trevino. The inquest was not about the death of Ruben Salazar and who had killed him. The inquest was a pretext to vilify the Chicano community to portray uh, the Chicano community as a group of radicals that uh, had, from the very beginning, set their mind to destroying and to attacking the police. And then they tried to find any evidence they could to support this. So they went through the showcase coroner's inquest. It was a divided vote, as I understand. Then the district attorney, Evel J. Younger, decided not to file any charges. Felix Gutierrez is emeritus professor at USC Annenberg School of Journalism. Ruben Salazar was the only person who could speak with authority and credibility to both the Anglo or general population and the Spanish-speaking population through his L.A. Times work and then his column. And he also, because of being news director of Spanish-language TV station, KMEX spoke directly to the Latino community. So he was a bridge he was a bridge between two very divided worlds in those days. So silencing his voice 
was a devastating move toward interracial, intergroup, interethnic understanding. Uh, for the Spanish-speaking audience, they led a significant news organization, and it showed that, uh, you know, if you speak out or speak up too much, you might uh, end up paying a price. I don't know that it was directly, but I'm sure that if the uh, news director of uh, one of the English-language stations had been killed the way Salazar was killed by a sheriff's deputy, there would have been more of, a, more of an inquest, more of a serious attention to what happened. The L.A. County Sheriff's Department historian declined to comment for this story on Ruben Salazar's death or the investigation that followed. You're listening to Frontline East L.A. on Making Contact. Making Contact is offered for free to stations across the country and around the world. Check us out on Twitter and Instagram or wherever you get your podcasts. Our handle is making underscore contact. And now back to Frontline East LA, the Chicano Moratorium 50 years later. On August 29, 1970, some 30,000 people demonstrated against the disproportionate number of Latinos dying on the front lines in Vietnam. And let me tell you, it was an ocean of people. You could hear them coming and coming and coming. But this Chicano moratorium against the war was built on the foundations of years of organizing for social change on many different fronts. That's how Irene Tovar began working on behalf of the community. She got started by working to improve education for Spanish-speaking children. In the sense that we were united, we felt good about each other because we united against an injustice. That was the, the good part of it. But at the same time, we were acknowledging the tragedy of, of the casualties that were occurring in our, in our community, especially since we were denied all these things. And the reason I tell you about the education uh, how we were involved, because that was one of many other issues that throughout the Southwest, we were complaining or protesting about the issue of, of our children's education, uh, the lack of the punishment because of our culture, our language. In 2001, Tovar was honored by the U.S. Congress for her decades of service in empowering Latinos in California. One of her earliest projects was establishing the first educational Head Start program in the San Fernando Valley section of Los Angeles. A few years prior to that, Tovar and her community took it upon themselves to support Spanish-speaking children in school. Between 1962 and 1965, roughly, we, we raised money. We sold enchiladas, we had bake sales, whatever, to pay a bona fide um, preschool teacher uh, to come twice a week and teach children 600 words in English and other uh, early child development skills, okay? Preparing them for elementary because at that time, again, uh, the local schools had uh, corporate punishment if you spoke Spanish. 
In my elementary school, the practice was that if the child was heard speaking Spanish in the classroom, in the hallway, in the playground, you were you were punished. And for usually the girls, you went in front of the classroom and you extended your hand out and the teacher would ask you, uh, Margarita, why are you being punished? And Margarita, very shy, very frightened, would say, because I spoke Spanish. So what the teacher would do, get the ruler and hit the little girl on the hand. And that was, can you just imagine a young child being humiliated in front of their fellow student, okay, problem. So we wanted to address that. We wanted children to feel comfortable when they entered at least 600 words in, in English. It was experiences like these, whether it was the shaming of a child's first language, a lack of opportunity in the workplace, or having a higher probability of finding yourself on the front lines in Vietnam, that drew Latinos to the moratorium. At the same time, Chicano activists and journalists say they were being surveilled and increasingly scrutinized. In this clip from the film Requiem 29, Raul Ruiz tells hearing officer Norman Pitluck about his newspaper's experience with L.A. County sheriffs after the protest. Would you bring a complete set of your pictures uh, to this session this afternoon? That is impossible. Is that because you can't get your hands on them or something? That's right. Where are they now? Most of our negatives simply because we believe that the, that the sheriffs were going to raid us since the day before La Raza was published, the shirts were all over our office. At that point, uh, in one point, the shirts did try to come into our office. And uh, at this point, one of our lawyers uh, stopped the shirts from coming into the office and asked them just what they were trying to do. And at this point, the sheriff uh, re uh, retreated back into the squad cars and questioned some of the people that were outside. They searched some of the people. They searched the cars and what have you. And this was on a, uh, this was like on a, uh, a half-hour basis at our office. Anybody coming in or going out was stopped. And and so therefore, you know, uh, as far as the work that was being done photographically, we could not take that chance of having the, the sheriffs come and steal our our property. So therefore, you know, it was it was it was removed from the area. Well, then where are the negatives now? Well, wow. You know, I, 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 again, I don't understand, you know, this line of questioning, whether it is from you or whether it is from the, from the, from the prosecutor or whoever, you know, as to what it has to do, you know, with the inquest of Ruben Salazar. It's been 50 years since the events that transpired on August 29, 1970, and the investigation into Ruben Salazar's death remains officially unresolved. Still, there was a backlash that people suffered through and a culture of surveillance to navigate, or at least the threat of it. Irene Tovar. I'll tell you, some of our meetings were packed with people, but we knew who was who, okay? Uh, the East LA people knew who they were, and so we could identify just by, we never confronted, to my knowledge, we never confronted them, but we knew it and we would announce it in our meetings. We know that there are some undercover people here. So they 
we wanted them to know that we knew that they were there and hearing everything. And we had nothing that we, that we were hiding from them. We were legitimately exercising our amendment rights under the constitution. And so we were very open about it. So we were harassed before, during, and after. Uh, after maybe a little bit more, um, it was just as harassment, just as painful, just as ugly, just as efforts to put fear in us. For me, it didn't do that. It made me more determined that in whatever way I could, as one individual, that I was going to fight anything that resembled this ever again. Uh, it, it made me uh, so determined because I had seen it. We had planned it. We had legitimate concerns like any other citizen to protest the war that was really taking our young men in large, in, in ridiculous proportion to our population and then denied our rights in education and employment and housing, every aspect that constitute our society, we had not been giving our dues. We, we were there, but we were not <laughs> visible. In five decades, progress has certainly been made in politics and labor and education. For the first time, the majority of the University of California 2020 freshman class are Latinos. Comparing Latinx representation in politics and media to 50 years ago, Felix Gutierrez acknowledges that we've made significant progress. But when considering the population size of Latino communities and their issues, there's still a long way to go. Compared to 50 years ago, we've made uh, significant progress. Compared to where we are today in terms of the population size and issues and understanding, uh, we still have a long way to go. People know who we are. People do recognize our existence, something that I think they did not always before. But the level of understanding, I think, is still not there. We have more um, celebrities than we did 50 years ago, sports stars, politicians who play significant roles. But the day-to-day -day Latino events, I think, are still separated into problem people and zoo stories, where either people who are beset or causing problems for others or were on display, like in the zoo, on Cinco de Mayo, Puerto Rican Independence Day, this says Independence Day and such. We have to go beyond visibility to understanding, and we're not there yet. Jesus Trevino. All you need to do is look at uh, local news. Uh, we have heard reports of um, the federal government sending um, camouflaged federal agents uh, to Portland to infiltrate and arrest people, literally kidnapping people off the streets whom they think are troublemakers and, uh, and are responsible for the riots. And, um, and without any identification of who they are or on what grounds people are being detained or kidnapped. And, uh, and this, of course, is reminiscent of totalitarian societies uh, where you don't have a say and where you don't have rights. And so um, in a way, what you see, what they're trying to do is portray those instances where, you know, there is um, confrontations or there is, uh, you know, violence 
and they're trying to um, basically paint the whole crowd with the same paintbrush and say this is happening throughout and therefore we have to come in and take over. And in many ways, this is reflective of how the uh, sheriffs and LAPD in the aftermath of the moratorium uh, march and riot uh, were trying to portray the Latino community as the bad guys and justifying any actions that they did uh, to, bring, to bring down violence upon them. Rosalio Munoz. And these Gestapo-like attacks on demonstrations in Seattle uh, and other places around the country that are they're uh, promoting, it's, a, it's deja vu all over again with a vengeance. And so those lessons we need to know about August 29th. But most of my life, it's not been uh, the August 29th as the main day to focus on. It's been different issues. And this year, it's November 3rd. And that's where we need a big turnout of people to change the direction of our country and in the White House and in the Senate. Uh, that's where the moratorium for me is. One of the best ways of doing that is registering, especially young people of all sorts, uh, and uh, organizing to get people to vote by mail. That's that's where the mobilization uh, is needed. So that's my focus on that. There's many ways that we, can, we should be celebrating our legacy of uh, teaching our people's history and bringing it uh, to people's attention. I hope I've been able to bring uh, some attention to what was happening on uh, August 29th. We kept on demonstrating. There kept on being much, much more uh, uh, infiltration and surveillance and intervention. At one point, there were people that came and said, <laughs> in the name of the community, uh, and ousted me as being too nonviolent uh, after the moratorium. But later on, it was revealed that the, uh, they were led by undercover agents. Irene Tovar. I've learned that in this country, under these rules now, if you don't speak up, you don't get anywhere. The other thing is that we got to be very persistent. I've been around a long, long time. I, as long as God gives me the strength, I will keep on trucking, as they say, okay? Because we're dealing with the dignity of human beings, okay? If we really believe either religiously or secular, that we're valuable as human beings, then we have to play a role in ensuring that we dignify that body, that human being. What many started long before I was here, some was, was battling for my rights. And, and I was able to get a little bit more than the previous generation because of them. And we hope that those of us that have been uh, advocating that that they remember that now they have an obligation to do the same for their next generation that will come after them. The Chicano moratorium march to Laguna Park, now Ruben Salazar Park, brought visibility to the issues affecting Latinos. But the police attacks overshadowed the activists' message of peace and social change. It shook up the community and disrupted the movement's momentum. It also propelled some Chicano activists to create works of art, to educate others, or to continue to fight for social change, while other Mexican-American journalists followed the path cut by Ruben Salazar. 
You've been listening to Frontline East L.A., the Chicano Moratorium 50 Years Later. Special thanks to Yolanda Provost for allowing us to use excerpts of the film Requiem 29, directed by David Garcia and produced by Moctezuma Esparza. Special thanks also to Susan Racho for editorial assistance. The Making Contact team is Sonia Green, Lisa Redman, Anita Johnson, Salima Hamarani, Sabine Blazin, and I'm Monica Lopez. Thanks for listening to Making Contact. <laughs>